Well, this morning as we study God's Word together, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11 this morning. That will be our text. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11 as we continue as a church body to work through the New Testament book of 1 Peter section by section. This morning's message will actually tie together with last Sunday morning's message. I will briefly review that in a little bit, but I want you to think of these two messages together. And this is what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is the end of all things. Last week, we learned that it has never been easy to be a Christian to be a child of God in a secular culture. If we desire to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and if we desire to obey the teachings of Scripture, we will find ourselves going against the culture, excuse me, and swimming against the tide. And so Peter tells us to arm ourselves with the very mind of Christ to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as our Savior thought, to have the mind of Christ. And that's what we looked at last week, that by the very nature of who we are, we are going to find ourselves now and in the future going against the tide and swimming against the current, and we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Christ suffered in the flesh before his death and during his death and we are also to be willing to suffer because we belong to God. As our master, as our Lord suffered, so we too will suffer as his ambassadors in this world. And as I shared with you last week, we find ourselves today living in an increasingly secular and even hostile culture. I shared with you from Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, who often comments on the political and social issues of our day, that Al Mohler has said frequently that we are living right now, right now, in a moral revolution. There is a moral revolution going on in our country all around us. The agenda of the LGBT community is being thrust upon us. 
It is being thrust upon us constantly, almost every day, as we read the news. And those who seek to protect religious freedoms and liberties are being opposed at every turn. But we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. This has always been true. This has always been true of the children of God because this world is not our home. And so last week, we took a brief walk through, a, a look at how this has always been true of God's children throughout biblical history. The very people to whom Peter is writing in 1 Peter are undergoing Severe persecution that was about to get even more intense under the rule of the Roman Empire at that time. And folks, that was, or 1 Peter is, was written in approximately 64 AD, so that was about, about 2,000 years ago. And then last week I shared with you about the ancient city of Sodom. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham has this great intercessory moment, this intercessory prayer with God, where he says to God, O oh Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you destroy the city? And God says, no, if there are 50 righteous people, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham goes down from 50 all the way to 10, and he says, O oh Lord, forgive me, don't be impatient with me, but what if there are only 10? What if there are only ten righteous people in Sodom? Will you destroy it? And the Lord says, no. If there are ten righteous people, I will spare the city. But we know God didn't spare the city. He destroyed Sodom along with its neighboring city of Gomorrah. And folks, there, as I shared with you, it is believed that the ancient city of Sodom was a very significant city. Approximately 250,000 people, archaeologists estimate, lived in Sodom. And there weren't even 10 righteous people. Among 250,000 people, God could not even find 10 righteous people. Folks, Sodom was in moral chaos absolute moral chaos, and so God destroys the city. Now, Sodom is believed to have been destroyed in approximately 2067 B.C. Folks, that's 4,000 years ago. Over 4,000 years ago. What is happening in our country is not surprising. It is not new. What is surprising is how rapidly our own country is going down the same path as ancient cultures. So the question becomes, which is today's text, so how do we live for Christ in a sinful and fallen world? That has always been a great question for the people of God in every generation. How are we ambassadors for Christ? How are we witnesses for Christ? How do we live for our Savior in a world that is sinful and fallen? Well, everything in today's passage is built upon the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. That is the key phrase this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Now, this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. 
Peter is not talking about the end of the Roman government. He's not talking about the end of their persecution. He is talking here about the consummation of all things. When Jesus returns. Now, when the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord or of the end of all things, it technically is referring to that entire time period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So when we see those kinds of phrases or the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is speaking about that entire time period. Now, in our evangelical circles, when we hear that a pastor or a speaker is doing a series of sermons on the end times, we tend to think of the end times as that time between the rapture of the church and the return of Christ to destroy his enemies and to set up his millennial kingdom. And that is true. That is how the end times can be referred to. But in the New Testament, most often, the day of the Lord, the end of all things, is that entire time period between the first and second comings of Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ has always been called, has always been called to live in anticipation of the return of Christ. I believe with all my heart that Peter, that Paul, that James, that John, they were all anticipating that Christ would return. He had left them. He had ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But they were looking in their own time in the first century that Jesus was going to return. And they were living in that anticipation. And that has been true throughout church history. In the great Protestant Reformation that ran approximately from 1517 to 1648, a time of great revival when there was a renewed emphasis on the great teaching of Scripture that salvation comes by faith alone. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was this heightened sense that Jesus was going to return. They were living in, an, in anticipation of the return of Jesus. During the first great awakening in our own country, in the early years of our own country, in the 1730s and 40s, the first great awakening, in the second great awakening in the early 1800s, there was this heightened sense of the return of the Lord. One of the most frequent questions that I get asked is, Pastor Tim, with all that we see happening around us, not only in our own country, but all around the world, do you think that the coming of Jesus is close at hand? And I always say it could be. It could be. I sure know this. It's a lot closer now than it was 2,000 years ago. It is. It could. We believe as a church. We believe as a church in what is called the imminent return of Christ. The word imminent simply means at any time. We believe that Jesus could return at any time. There's nothing else we're waiting for to happen. Jesus could come today. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We just know we're always to live in anticipation of his coming. In our own First Baptist Church doctrinal statement, it says this, we believe that his, that Jesus returned from heaven will be personal, visible, and glorious, a blessed hope for which we should constantly watch and pray, the time being unrevealed but always imminent. 
If you're a member here this morning of our church, you signed that statement of faith saying, I believe that. I agree with that. And so we are, as a church, as the people of God, we are to be always living in anticipation of the return of Jesus. This is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13 and verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's exactly what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 4 in these verses, verses 7 through 11. That's exactly what he is saying. In James chapter 5 and verse 8, James writes, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Isn't that interesting? Those to whom James wrote some 2,000 years ago, and he says the coming of the Lord is at hand. In Revelation 22:20, 20, the Apostle John says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that has always been the heart cry of the church. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Even in 1 Peter, we have already seen this a number of times. If you would, hold your place there in chapter 4 and go back to chapter 1 in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Notice this. In the last time. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Watch this at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, our second point this morning is one word, therefore. Therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore, my brothers and sisters, Peter is saying, this is how you are to live. He says four things in this passage, four things about how we are to live in an increasingly secular and hostile culture. We are to be a people of prayer. We are to love one another. We are to serve one another. And we are to do everything for the glory of God. Those are the four things that he sets before us. To be a people of prayer. To love one another. To serve one another. And to do everything for the glory of God. Let's unpack those things one at a time. As we anticipate the return of Christ, we are to be a people devoted to prayer. The second part of verse 7. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your 
prayers. What we're not to do is, on the one hand, we're not to be lazy and indifferent. On the other hand, we're not to be panicked and frenzied about all that's happening around us. No, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake, for the sake of prayer. In Mark chapter 5, there is that famous story of Jesus casting out a legion of demons from the Gerasene demoniac. This was a man who was absolutely wild. He ran around naked. He cut himself. They would put chains on him. They would break those chains. Jesus comes to that area, and he casts out that legion of demons. And the Bible says that when the townspeople came, they found this man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Sitting there clothed and in his right mind. They'd never seen this man like this before. That term there, in his right mind, is exactly the thought that is used by Peter here to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Excuse me, sober-minded. It is the exact same thought. It is to be so clear-minded that every day you have an eternal perspective. You see everything in light of eternity. You see everything from God's perspective. You see, in the flesh, and we are all guilty of this, myself included, in the flesh, every day we become so obsessed with our daily responsibilities. Sometimes we become panicked and frenetic about what we see happening in our own culture and in the world around us. And sometimes we find ourselves in bondage to our secret sins. Could be lust, pornography. Could be envy, jealousy, bitterness, gossip. And what Peter is saying, I want you to put aside all of those things. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be sober-minded so that you can pray as God wants you to pray. What does it mean to be self-controlled and sober-minded? means to be so clear-minded that you can see that God sits enthroned above the heavens and he is in control of everything. No matter what I see around me, I know by faith that God is on his throne and he is in control. To be self-controlled and sober-minded means that I see clearly that Jesus could return at any time. To be self-controlled and sober-minded means that I see clearly that life is short. I see that my life is a vapor, a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. When I am self-controlled and sober-minded, I see clearly I see clearly that people all around me are perishing without Christ, going to an eternal damnation, and my heart is broken for them. When I am self-controlled and sober-minded, I see clearly that apart from Christ, 
I can do nothing. I see all of these things clearly, and so I pray, and I pray, and I pray. Peter has also already said something similar to this in 1 Peter 3, 7, when he says, Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way. Honor them as the weaker vessel so that your prayers won't be hindered. So that your prayers won't be hindered. In Jude, verse 20, it says, or Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Love that phrase. To be self-controlled and sober-minded. Having your mind immersed with the word of God. And praying. Is what Jude means by praying in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Folks, as you watch the news, as you become concerned and worried and maybe even upset about what's happening in the culture around us, give yourselves to prayer. Pray and pray and pray. Jesus' primary teaching on prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6 in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he says, and when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We are to go into our prayer rooms, wherever that may be for you, close the door and to pray, to pour out our hearts in prayer. There may be some of you here this morning and you're not comfortable praying in public. Maybe you're not comfortable getting in groups of people and, and praying out loud. Some Christians are like that. I understand that. I'm sensitive. I want to be sensitive to that. But let me tell you, Jesus' primary teaching on prayer is open to every single one of us. Every single person here who knows Christ as Savior, you can go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, knowing that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. First of all, the first thing that we need to do as the people of God is to give ourselves to constant, fervent prayer. Secondly, as we anticipate the return of Christ, we are to love one another. In verses 8 and 9, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter says, Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly is a key word there, it is the picture of an athlete striving with all his or her might in an athletic event. Their muscles are tense. It's giving it everything they have. It is the beautiful picture of a horse in full stride, running as fast as it can with its muscles just bulging. And what Peter is saying, above all, keep loving one another with everything that you have. And here's why. 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Famous verse out of 1 Peter chapter 4. Love covers a multitude of sins. In James chapter 5 and verse 20, we find almost a verbatim rendering of this same verse. It is believed to be derived from Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, where it says, love covers all offenses. Here's the thought. Even as the redeemed children of God, we are sinful people. We don't always treat one another as we should. Every single one of us in the church, we get our feelings hurt. We are offended by someone else. Somebody doesn't do something that we think they should have done. It is easy to get wounded in the church. It is easy to get wounded in the church. And if we are going to survive, if we are going to be the light of Christ, if we are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then we've got to be a forgiving people. Love covers a multitude of sins. No matter what someone else has done to you, we must be willing to forgive. We must be willing to bear with one another. Ray Pritchard, well-known pastor and author, says this about this verse. He says, No healthy church can survive unless they practice this. No healthy church can survive unless love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, there are occasional times when someone has sinned grievously in a public manner and it needs to be dealt with publicly by the church. But the vast majority of time, the vast majority of times, we need to constantly, regularly be forgiving one another. And then he says, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the ancient Hebrew culture, that was certainly carried on into the New Testament culture. Hospitality was a hallmark of the Christian life. Opening your home to serve others, giving what you have monetarily and materially to serve others, to show hospitality to others. In the first century, as Christians traveled around, they didn't stay in hotels or motels. There were very few inns, and the inns that were there were usually dirty and dangerous, so they relied on one another. If you traveled to another town, to another village, you would stay in the home of another believer, and they counted on that hospitality. And even down to our own day, hospitality is still considered to be at the very heart of our service, of our love for one another. But it goes beyond just actions. What it means here is that you have a constant attitude of unselfish graciousness, a constant attitude of unselfish graciousness. John MacArthur writes this. He said, the spirit of hospitality extends beyond the tangible acts of providing meals or a place to stay. It includes not just the act, but an unselfish attitude so that what is done 
no matter the sacrifice, is done without complaint. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, as we anticipate the return of our Savior, let us love one another because love covers a multitude of sins and let us show hospitality, unselfish graciousness to one another. Third, as we anticipate the return of Christ, we are to serve one another with the spiritual gifts God has given to each of us. In verse 10, we read, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. Back in 2009, I did a fairly long sermon series on the Holy Spirit. It was a systematic look at what the Bible, especially the New Testament, says about the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of that series, I did three separate sermons on spiritual gifts. It's an important subject. When you came to know Christ as Savior, you were given a spiritual gift or a combination of spiritual gifts. Could be teaching, could be administration, could be mercy, could be helps. There are a whole variety of different spiritual gifts given to God's children. And my gifts are not your gifts, and your gifts are not my gifts, and your gifts are not the same as other. God gives every local body of believers different spiritual gifts so that they might serve one another. And Peter reminds us, that's why you have a spiritual gift, not to keep to yourself, not to hoard, but for serving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God loves variety. He hasn't created us all the same, and he has given us different spiritual gifts that complement one another so that we might serve one another and take that service beyond this walls or beyond these walls to those who need to know Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7, is that famous section where Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice that there are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of activities, but each of them is given to us by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, for our common good. And Peter gives us two very specific examples. Example number one in verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Some of us have been gifted to teach and to share with others. And when we do, we are to speak the word of God. Whether you are a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, maybe you teach a Bible study outside, maybe you teach outside of the church, maybe you teach an evangelistic Bible study. And he's saying, when you speak, speak the word of God. One of the greatest temptations for every teacher at any level is to teach your opinion rather than the word of God. 
and that is a temptation we must all resist. We all have our opinions about the political issues of our day. We all have our opinions about what's going on in our country. But folks, when we come together at the church or we minister as an extension of this church, we speak the word of God. And that is why it's important that we memorize the word of God and that we immerse ourselves constantly in the word of God. Whether we counsel or teach in a small group or to a larger setting, let us speak the word of God. I loved what one writer said. He said, when you speak God's word, something supernatural happens because that is his inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Remember that, whether you feel it or not, when you speak to others God's words, when you minister God's words to other people, something supernatural is taking place. Second example Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Some Christians have profound giftedness in the area of serving. They take meals to those who are in need. They do hospital visits or home visits to people who are needy or to people who are elderly. Maybe you have building skills of some sort and you love to help around the church, or you love to help other people, or you love to help out our missionaries with projects. Maybe you're just one of those people that loves to go around doing random acts of kindness to anyone and everyone you come in contact with. Man, praise God for that. Praise God for those of you. All of us ought to do it, but some of us have profound gifts in those areas. Whoever serves... Serve by the strength that God supplies. Rely on him, trust in him, depend on him. As we anticipate the return of Christ, let every one of us serve one another, serve our community, serve those who are in need of Christ. Let us serve with the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us. And then finally, as we anticipate the return of Christ, we are to live our lives for the glory of God. Look at the second part of verse 11. In order that, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Do you see how it works together here? If you speak, speak the oracles of God. Speak the word of God. If you serve, serve with the strength that God supplies so that in everything you do, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Let us remind ourselves today and every time that we meet together, the only reason we meet together as the church, the only reason we meet together as the church today is because God has saved us. He has saved us by his grace. He has saved us by his mercy. He has saved us by his kindness. Titus says it is not by works of righteousness that you have done, but by his mercy. By his mercy, the only reason we are the church today is because God in his mercy had pity upon us and saved us 
through the death and resurrection of his gracious son. Therefore, in everything we think, and in everything we say, and in everything we do, we are to give God all the glory and all the praise. For to him and to him alone belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me try to bring this all together this morning. Let's make this very practical. The Bible is so relevant. As I've shared with you many times, it's why we believe as a church in expositional preaching and teaching to bring out the beauty, to bring out the fullness of the Word of God. As I've shared with you many times, you don't have to make the Word of God relevant. It is relevant. It is relevant. Just teach it. Just teach it as God inspired it and revealed it to us. What Peter wrote to his readers almost 2,000 years ago is so relevant to us right now, right where we are. As First Baptist Church of St. John's, we find ourselves today living in an increasingly secular and even hostile culture. Folks, let us live in anticipation of the return of Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, let us be a church devoted to prayer. Therefore, let us be a church that loves one another. Therefore, let us be a church that serves one another with the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us. Therefore, let us be a church that passionately seeks to glorify God in everything. We're going to close in just a moment. The ensemble is going to come back up and we're going to close with that song that we sing from time to time all to us. We need to let the watching world know that Jesus is a beautiful, majestic Savior whose free gift of salvation is available to all who believe. We need to display the wonder and beauty of our Savior. And for this world, they may not agree with us. They may oppose us. They may even hate us. But we must continually let them know Jesus is everything to us. Let's pray. Father, help us to be your salt, to be your light in the culture and historical context in which we find ourselves living right now. Oh, Father, help us to live anticipating the return of our precious Savior. Oh, God, help us to be a people of prayer. Help us by your grace to love one another. Help us to serve one another. And help us by your enablement and your power to do everything we do for the sake, 
for the glory of our King, for the sake of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.